All right. Good to be with you this morning, sort of, in this interesting way. And uh, good to be with Justine and Emily and Aaron, particularly uh, this morning. Um, as we uh, as we approach this moment where we open God's Word and we think together on it, um, you know we've got a uh, we've got an interesting world we're dealing with right now and interesting stuff we're dealing with, and I'm not going to deal with it a lot in the, in our message today, to be honest with you. Uh, but I want to be aware of it and uh, and I want to be in prayer with you over it. Uh, we're going to instead we're going to we're going to be looking at a, a scripture in Luke chapter seven for those of you who would be interested in opening a Bible or your device or whatever Luke chapter seven verses one through ten. But before we do that, well, let's pray together. Uh, God, we are in uh, this place, which is many places this morning, and yet we are here gathered together in one sense, in one space, because you are the one who moves in all of these spaces and are able to overcome time and place and bring us together and be with each of us and all of us at the same time. And we're grateful for that. Uh, We do think about our country today and our world. We do think about this pandemic that continues to go on. We pray that Holy Spirit, uh, you will be moving, moving in the, uh, in the minds particularly of those who are trying to come up with solutions. We pray that you will move them to solutions sooner rather than later. We pray for the health and well-being of, uh, of our people and the world's people. We think of the upheaval in our own nation um, as people take to the streets. So very, very many of them, we are grateful, Lord, and peaceful demonstration and protest. We pray that you will, you will um, move uh, on our streets to, to quell uh, violence and to, uh, and to keep those uh, peaceful events and to give leaders and people uh, wisdom. Bless us as we now move into your word and as we spend some time uh, with you, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Said, I want to take you to Luke chapter 7. Here's the setting. Uh, This is early on in the ministry of Jesus. And uh, Jesus is coming now to the uh, uh, lakeside, Lake Galilee, the lakeside village of Capernaum, which it would appear to be was kind of his base of operations. We we know it to be the home of uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, perhaps of Simon Peter and, and Andrew as well. Uh, it's a fishing port. And, uh, and here's the story. Hear God's word. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some uh, some elders of the Jews to him, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. 
When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is God's word to us, and we give him thanks. So this morning in Luke's gospel, we have a story. A story about an encounter between Jesus and a certain man who was an outsider. An outsider whose faith absolutely amazed Jesus. The man was a centurion, says the story. So he was an outsider because he was the leader of an unwanted military presence an occupying force of a hundred Roman soldiers stationed in the Jewish village of Capernaum and assigned to keep, to keep order in the area of the Galilee. The centurion was also a Roman, therefore an outsider by race and nationality, so we've got strike one and strike two, and in the eyes of the Jewish religious establishment, He was a pagan, an outsider by religious persuasion, strike three. And yet, this outsider was not without some friends amongst the elders of the Jews. Apparently, the centurion had demonstrated a genuine concern for the people of Capernaum and had even assigned his troops the task of of building a house of worship, a synagogue for them. So, when the centurion's slave became sick and was near death, the elders of the Jews went to Jesus on his behalf. And that strikes me as a strange picture. The elders of the Jews interceding to bring one outsider together with another outsider. For Jesus was an outsider of sorts as well, an unconventional teacher with new and revolutionary ideas about God and about authentic religion. Given a choice, the Jewish elders would probably have voted to send the centurion and his army back to Rome and Jesus with them. And yet, here they are, pleading with one outsider on behalf of another outsider, It's a strange picture, I think. Jesus, they say, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. It's tit for tat time, Jesus. Do it because the man is worthy. Do it because the man deserves it. Do it because the man has earned this favor. So Jesus, says the story, went with them. Now, 
As the master approaches the centurion's house, which was likely not far away, this is after all a small village, the fellow sends some friends out with a message. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. In other words, the centurion is saying, don't make trouble for yourself, Jesus. I, I understand the rules and customs of your people. I, I know that a devout Jew is not even supposed to be seen in conversation with an outsider like myself. I know that a devout Jew would be looked down upon and considered unclean if he were to, to, to enter the home of a Gentile like myself. So, don't make trouble for yourself on my account, Jesus. The centurion was a kind and sensitive man and also humble. Did you, did you catch that? He says, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. The elders said to Jesus, do it because he deserves it. The centurion said, I deserve nothing. The elder said, Jesus, do it because he's earned it. The centurion said, I've earned nothing. The elder said, do it because he is worthy. The centurion said, I am unworthy. Folks, just to be just to be clear here, we're not talking about a fellow with low self-esteem. Rather, we're talking about a fellow with a high level of esteem for Jesus. We're talking about reverence and awe in the presence of Jesus. Reverence and awe in the presence of the one who is truly worthy and who is far greater than we are. It is uh, said to have happened in a public museum in Vienna, Austria, a museum that houses the piano that used to belong to the great composer Ludwig van Beethoven. An American tourist one day walked casually toward it and seating herself on a stool before the astonished guard could stop her, she played a few bars on Beethoven's piano. When the upset attendant admonished her, she remarked that, that, that surely many of the world's greatest pianists had, had been through the museum to inspect the instrument. And he informed her that just a few weeks earlier, the, the world-renowned pianist Ignaz Padruski had made a pilgrimage to the shrine. But Padruski, exclaimed the arrogant tourist, but Padruski, surely he must have played something most beautiful on this instrument. Oh no, miss, replied the attendant, oh no. His friends pleaded with him to do so, but he stepped back from the piano saying, no, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to play the master's keyboard. Now get this, Bedruski had a proper sense of awe and respect in the presence of that which symbolized Beethoven's work. His words, I am not worthy, were not meant to put himself down so much as they were meant to lift Beethoven up, and that is genuine humility. The centurion, I tell you, the centurion had a proper sense of awe and respect and reverence in the presence of Jesus. He knew where the focus of attention belonged, on Jesus, not on himself, but say the word, just give the order, just say the word and my, my servant will be healed. Jesus, I may not be worthy, 
And my servant may not be worthy, but Jesus, I know that won't matter to you. You were a man full of mercy and compassion and understanding. Even for outsiders like my servant and me, you have the authority and the power to but speak a word from a distance and my servant will be healed. You can do it, Jesus. I know you can do it, so do it. Not because I deserve it, I don't. Not because I've earned it, I haven't. Not because I'm worthy, I'm not. Do it. Do it, Jesus, because my servant needs it and because you can and because you're a man of mercy. Wow. Look to the story. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at the centurion and turning to the crowd following him, this crowd of Jews, Jesus said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The centurion was a sensitive, kind man. He was a properly humble man in the presence of Jesus, and he was a man of sincere faith. He believed in Jesus. He believed in Christ's mercy and compassion. He believed in Christ's power and authority. And somehow, some way, from someone, he had gotten the idea that Jesus had come and God's love was meant for outsiders as well as insiders, for Gentiles as well as Jews, for Romans as well as Israelites. And that I think, that I think is the main idea of this story. This is a story that welcomes everyone. It is a story about a Jesus who welcomes everyone. There are there are many, many, many other stories and episodes in the life of Jesus that the gospel writer Luke could have used and could have recorded but chose not to. He chose to include this story for a reason. When with it, get this now, with, with this story, Luke is reminding the church of the first century and the church of every century, including our own, I think, Luke is reminding the church that Jesus Christ, the Son of the Almighty God, came for all people, and not for just a few people. He is reminding us that God is the God of all people, not just of a few people, that God is much bigger than our mortal, much bigger than our finite, much bigger than our tribal minds choose to believe. Jesus came long ago to move his own people, the Jews, beyond the boundaries of their limited thinking. The Jews of Jesus' day, you see, they limited God. By and large, they limited God to their own kind, so easy for human beings to do. They had nationalized God. To him, he was the God of Israel. He belonged to Israel. No other nation, no other people, no other race had any right to lay claim on Israel's God. And, and that kind of thinking, by the way, had been around for a long, long while, at, at least since the days of Jonah the prophet. Remember the story of Jonah and that big fish? Big fish is just a prop. Jonah's story is bigger than a big fish. Remember how, remember how God came to Jonah one day and said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to the people of that great city and I want you to tell them to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. And Jonah responded, Nineveh. 
You, you can't be serious, God. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians are enemies of Israel. And God, if they're Israel's enemies, they should also be your enemies because you're Israel's God. You belong to Israel and only to Israel and surely not to Assyria. But God, God was serious. He really wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Says the Bible, Jonah ran away from the Lord. There's humor in the Bible. Jonah ran away from the Lord. Now Jonah fled to the seaport of Joppa, got on a boat, headed for Tarshish. Here's the deal. Nineveh is east. Jonah heads west, away from Nineveh, oh, and away from Israel, away from God. At least that's what Jonah thinks. Remember, remember the story? As the boat sails out to sea, Jonah relaxes. He goes below deck where he lays down and falls into a deep, deep sleep with God off his back, with God in the rear view mirror. Jonah can relax. He figures he has left God and he has left his problem, his God problem behind him in Israel. Jonah had limited God to the borders of Israel, literally literally to the borders of Israel and to the people of Israel boxed in because he was Israel's God. The people of Israel were inside the box with God and all others were outsiders whom God had demanded and whom God would ultimately crush and burn and obliterate. But Jonah soon learned that God abhors limits, that God loves outsiders, and that God refuses to be boxed in. God, God comes to Jonah in the midst of a terrible storm at sea, and God pushes Jonah beyond the boundaries of his limited thinking until at last Jonah is compelled to broaden his perspective as he exclaims, I am a Hebrew and I worship the God of all heavens, the one who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah discovers that God is no local deity, boxed in by racial boundaries, boxed in by national borders, boxed in by narrow doctrines. Jonah learns that the Lord is the God of all people everywhere, that he is the God of the heavens, the whole universe, that he's got the whole world and a lot more in his hands. And that, my friends, is one primary message that I think Jesus came to proclaim long ago and would have his church proclaim today. When he affirmed the centurion's faith, he pushed the people of his day beyond the boundaries. Let's remember together some of the things Jesus said and some of the things Jesus inspired to be said. For instance, Jesus' disciple and good friend John John did not say, for God so loved the children of Israel that he gave his one and only son. No, John wrote, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus did not say, go and make disciples of the children of all Israel. No, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus did not say, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. You know, in your hometown and in your home state, and that, that'll be enough. 
No, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, your hometown, and in all Judea, your home region, and in Samaria, you know, with those people you can't stand, and to the ends of the earth. And God's spokesman, the Apostle Paul, did not say God was reconciling Israel to himself. No, Paul said God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus. All right, here's the deal. Here's where we're at right now. We're at, we're at that place where this preacher and other preachers, we call this, at that place, it's time to land the plane. Um, that means it's time for the preacher to choose, a, to choose a runway to land on. And usually when you have stories from Jesus, there's more than one runway you could land on. That's why we can preach these stories over and over again. So here's the runway that I'm landing on. I, one of the things that we have not done during this time of virtual gathering is uh, to celebrate one of the central rituals of the church. The ritual some would call communion, others would call mass, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. To be honest now, I want you to think about this with me a bit. It is an insider ritual of sorts. Strange, downright odd even, I would think, to anyone who isn't really acquainted with it. And by the way, we're, we're, we're not going to celebrate it today either, but we are going to imagine it, and maybe in our imagining of it, we can even celebrate it. Maybe we don't need actual bread and an actual cup to celebrate it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine a table in front of me. If you're from Renew and you've been here, you can imagine that table. There's a table with a loaf of bread on it, for which I will give thanks, saying, after I break it, the body of Christ given for you. And then I'd, I'd hold up a large cup filled with, with grape juice or wine, your imagination now, you get to choose. I would bless the cup and I would say, the blood of Christ given for you. Eventually, I would instruct you to come up and uh, when you come up to, to take, to rip, a piece of bread off the loaf and dip the bread in the cup and eat it, giving thanks to God in your own way for the gift of Christ, remembering his life and his teaching, his death, his resurrection. And then I might say, after all of those instructions and those getting started stuff, I'd say, come. Come. All things are ready. Come. Are you with me? But here's the deal. When I say, come, to whom am I speaking? To whom is that invitation given? You see, when Christ followers come to such tables as we're imagining, there is always, always the temptation to exclude and limit, to say, you are welcome, but only if you meet certain criteria. You may come if you understand fully what we're doing here, if you get it. You may come if you belong to our tribe, to our denomination, or to our congregation, or to congregation, a congregation like us. You may come if you're old enough, but not too terribly old. If your mind is sharp enough to grasp the significance of our ritual, if, 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 if you have your life together, at least 
understand, or at least understand that you don't have your life together, as we understand having your life together, and you feel guilty enough about it. You may come if your faith is strong enough. You may come if you're sure. You may come if you're worthy. You may come if you deserve it. You may come if you think you've earned it. But I wonder, don't you at least wonder, are you willing to wonder with me? What would Jesus do? If Jesus were the one standing behind the table we're imagining, inviting people to participate, to participate in this sacrament that represents God's love for the world demonstrated in Christ Jesus our Lord, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? Who might Jesus invite? Well, here's what I imagine. First of all, this puny table we've been imagining, it wouldn't work. And the room some of you picture me in, it wouldn't work. Wouldn't be big enough. We, we need a much bigger table. We need a whole lot more room. So, let's move with our imaginations to Jack Trice Stadium. Okay, still not big enough, by the way but there's no way we're going to Texas Memorial or the Big House, so let's, we're in Ames, we're going to Jack Trice. Now envision with me a table that stretches from one end zone to the other end zone, a great big table with lots of room for lots of people, loaves of bread and cups of wine are spread over the length of the table, a sea of cardinal and gold on one side of the stadium and a sea of black and gold on the other. Yeah, even they are allowed in today. Now, I want you, I want you to see your pastor at one end of the table. Pastor Aaron, he has a golden brown loaf of unbroken bread in front of him, along with a beautiful, beautiful cup filled with, to the brim with the best wine available. And over the stadium loudspeaker comes Aaron's booming, lyrical, mesmerizing voice. It's my imagination. I can envision and imagine my son's voice any way I please. And this is what he says. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this place today. And now, let me introduce our generous host. Let me introduce the one who planned this extravagant party and paid for it with everything he had to give. It literally broke him. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And every jaw in the stadium drops and every voice goes silent even the obnoxious ones on both sides as Jesus takes the place of the host at the head of the table are you with me what would Jesus do what would Jesus say who would Jesus invite in my imagination, based upon my reading and understanding of his story on the pages of the New Testament and setting aside all of the things that the church has said over the years, in my imagination, I hear Jesus saying, Come to me, all 
you who are weary and burdened all. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Oh, and let the little children come to me. In fact, all of you come as little children. For truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, who will not come to my table like a little child, will never enter my kingdom. Come to me. Believe in God. Believe also in me and come to my table of love and embrace. Come. There's, there's room at my table for all of you. Come if you know you're undeserving and unworthy, yet beloved and valued. Come if your faith is strong. Come if your faith is weak. Come if you're sure. Come if you have doubts. Come if you've stayed near. Come if you're far away. Just come. Come to my table. Come to me. There's a story that some of the rabbis in Jesus' day like to tell. The story goes like this. It'll be a bit familiar to you, I think. Here's the story the rabbis of Jesus' day like to tell. The son of a certain father left home in rebellion and disgrace. He wandered far away from his father, both in distance and in character. But the way was rough for the son, and he longed to return to his father. The distance between father and son was great, and the responsibility for that separation and that distance, it was all on the son. Then one day, the son received a message from his father. Come home. The father said to the son, come home. And if you can't come all the way on your own, come as far as you can, and I will meet you on the road. I love that story. And somehow, for some reason, I think maybe Jesus did as well. But I can imagine a better version of that story. And since I'm up here and we're dealing with my imagination, you're stuck with it, so here it is. In my version, the son, who could also be a daughter, the child is now grown, is indeed separated from the father, a great distance from the father. Perhaps that separation because, is because of something the child did or something the child did not do, or perhaps, this, perhaps the separation is the result of something someone else did or did not do, or perhaps the separation, well, Separation just is. Life happened. The only thing my story knows for sure is that the father is good. The father is a really, really good man. And his longing for the child is beyond description. His heart aches for the return of his child. And then one day, the child receives a message from the father. Per perhaps a servant brought the message, or perhaps another sibling, a loving brother or sister, searched the world over, found the one longed for, and delivered the message, Come home, says the father to the child, Come home. And if you can't come all the way on your own, come as far as you can, and I will meet you on the road. And the son the daughter begins to weep, stands up, takes one step 
through blurred eyes and steps at once into the Father's embrace. That, my friends, is the God who revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the one who was crucified on a cross, the one risen from the grave, the one who is alive and loose in our world. And that table, that table we were imagining, well, it's his table. It's not my table. It's not this church's table. It's not any church's table. This table is so much bigger than me, bigger than you, bigger than us, bigger than the church. It's never, ever big enough because it's the Lord's table, because Jesus is the host, and Jesus is the one who invites whomever he wants to invite. And I, and I suspect, I suspect that the breath of his invitation is beyond my imagination or yours. This I know, he invites you, every one of you, come, he says, Come to my table, come to me, because you belong to me. All of you, you, you belong to me. Oh, and by the way, if you belong to me, you belong to each other. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, with gratitude we come before you thankful for who you are and who you demonstrate yourself to be in the person of Jesus. It is remarkable. His story tells us that if, if we want to know what you look like and what you love like and what you'd live like walking amongst us, we just, we just need to look at Jesus. And so we look at him. May our, our, may our eyes be there now and may our eyes be there in the days and more that are before us. In his name we pray. Amen.